Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History and happy first Monday of February. So I know I took last Monday off, but you know, we back. But you know, happy Black History Month. And I wanted to say that Black History Month was formerly known as Negro History Week, which was set to take place in the second week of February. And it was proposed in 1926 by historian, because, you know, we're the best, historian Carter G. Woodson. And the reason it was necessary then and still is today is because we still live in a society where the Black American perspective is ignored, as well as our contributions to the history of this country and to this hemisphere, stemming back as far as the 15th century. So for those of us who grew up, especially as one of the only black students or maybe the only black student in our classrooms, because I have that experience as well in the American school system, many of us were made to sit through the gripes from fellow classmates and even our teachers who didn't see the value of our ancestors or the value that we bring to the classroom as students who have another lived experience in this country. So especially happy Black History Month to us. So for those who are ignorant enough to suggest that every February that there should be a white history month, I thought I'd come up with a couple comebacks that you could, you know, say or ask to these people who insist that somehow white people are ignored and that their contributions are not heightened, discussed, or over-exaggerated in history. So some things you could use as comebacks are you can ask someone Name five black historical figures and their contributions to American history, and then just wait and blink at them. My friend Ash Molly has like the best blank stare blink, so (laughs) if you're listening, hey. Another thing you could say is name or ask is name five black authors whose literature you were required to read in middle or high school or even college. Another thing is what year was the Emancipation Proclamation written that even freed the enslaved? Something else is asking someone which genres of music besides hip-hop and rap were created with black music as its start. You could ask, why was California named that? Because there's a black reason that California has the name California. And another thing, the last one I have, is you can ask which states are shaped that way due to the restrictions on slavery. So most of the time, I find that, you know, when you actually, like, don't just get annoyed and ask someone, you know, a question. (laughs) They'll get annoyed, and of course they don't have an answer, but I just thought it would be nice to have a couple comebacks if any of you ever wanted to think of any that, you know, would be an alternative to just walking away, rolling your eyes, or, you know, getting into an argument with somebody. But I did want to say that the smart person knows that they have a lot to to learn, and they know that they don't know at all. So... You know, I always find that these people who claim that they need a white history month never have that same energy on St. Patrick's Day, President's Day, or the 4th of July, or even for Women's History Month, because those things center the white experience, or at least for the people who are now considered white people. So real quickly, well, quickly, to highlight some little-known black history, California was named that way by the Spanish after the mythical Queen Califia, who was a black Amazon. And also, major figures in black history were also members of the LGBTQ community because it's important to say that, you know, all black history is important. And that includes people who were happened to be part of that community as well as their lived experience racially of being black. 
So people like Bayard Rustin, who was a right-hand man of Martin Luther King Jr., who was huge for the civil rights movement, he was gay. Barbara Jordan, who was the first African-American to be elected to the House of Representatives after having been the first African-American period to serve on the Texas Senate since Reconstruction, which ended in 1877, for those unfamiliar, she was also a member of the LGBTQ community. So I wanted to start that off as our introduction for today. So now let's talk about the topic of this podcast. (laughs) We're going to discuss Nazi Germany and its impact on Black Germans, or Afro-Germans, as they would be called. So these people were not African Americans. So a lot of times I find that people, when they're talking about Black people outside of America, or even a lot of the student papers that I read, even my own students, they tend to use the term African-Americans to describe black people in any given country. And it's important to note that American is a national identity. So you cannot be, in this case, African-American if you are a black person who's from Brazil or a black person who's from Germany or a black person who's from Puerto Rico. Well, excuse me, (laughs) I guess that would be the exception, but a black person from um, like Jamaica, right? Because those aren't American colonies. So... Um, these are black people who were from Germany. And it's important to note that there are black people who are not American, right? And they were residents and citizens of European nations then and now. So I thought it was important for me to discuss this because I know there's been a recent conversation about the events that took place during the Nazi Third Reich and the Holocaust being about race, right? And the controversy over saying that it was not solely about race. So in Germany, before it came under Nazi occupation, I think that's important because oftentimes I think in American school systems, we sort of link Germany to Nazi Germany and we, you know, that's not the entire history of the country. So in Germany, before it became occupied under the Nazis, they had trade agreements and imperialist efforts in continental Africa. So they had territory that had different names at the time, but covered modern-day Burundi, Cameroon, Namibia, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Togo. So the exports that were stolen from those countries, and of course, you know, extracted, and the money that was used and taken back to Germany came from natural resources like timber, wildlife, copper, cobalt, nickel, uranium, iron ore, tungsten ore, gold, phosphate, quartzite, limestone, and a lot of other things. So, like I said, all the money that was made by extracting that wealth from these African countries, that money was taken back to Germany and built up the Prussian Empire and later the unified German Empire. So that money was moved into that stock market, right? Germany's stock market and their economic trade hubs that funded the aristocracy as well as built up their middle class that they used to claim that they were superior or more civilized than non-Europeans around the world. Because then, and even, you know, just like now in this country, people don't really know where the money's coming from, right? They don't know what's being done abroad so that we can have the things we have here. Same thing in Germany at that time. So much of their sentiment about their African colonies or territories was that they were civilizing those natives there by working them in exchange for access to a German way of life and a societal structure. 
So because of how trade works, as well as imperialism, people from those countries did migrate to Germany as early as the 1800s to become German citizens. And it's important to note that wealthy Africans from these countries, right, like wealthy Namibians, wealthy people from Burundi, wealthy Tanzanians, they would have sent their children to German colleges in Germany to be educated um, and then, you know, to assimilate to a society there or and or to come back to their home country to assume leadership positions. So that's not a foreign concept and it shouldn't be because that happens in the United States today. People from our imperialist territories abroad move to the mainland United States for things like education, acting, professional jobs, etc., just to name a few. So there were Afro-Germans who were a few generations in by the time the Third Reich had come to power that had never lived in continental Africa and were German citizens, right? So that's the only life they've ever known. Them, their parents, or grandparents, they've been German citizens for quite some time now. They spoke German as a first language and grew up learning to be nationally loyal to Germany the same way we do in our primary schools by having kids pledge allegiance to the flag, right, in this case of the United States. So these Afro-Germans were discriminated against, of course, because that's a tool of colonization and an aftermath of creating a race-based social science reason for imperialism abroad. But there were even those who were mixed race, especially in the early 1900s when Germany uh, began to allow interracial marriage between their, you know, the white German population and the black pop, the white, the, sorry, the black, white German population and the black German population. So fast forward to Nazi control, there were many black Germans and even those who were in marriages to so-called Aryans right now that there is a new classification of people that's um, arising at the time. So while Nazi Germany didn't necessarily force the interracial marriages that were already in place to become illegitimized in 1935 following a lot of these edicts that they were pushing through, they did make it easier for people in interracial marriages to get divorced because they wanted to encourage only Aryan partnerships, which would lead to Aryan children. And another thing I wanted to talk about was this idea that, you know, Africans and, you know, slash black people, because I do use the term interchangeably, but Africans had been on display throughout Europe well before Nazi occupation. So many of you may know about Sarchi Bartman, who was taken as an orphan by the Bartman family. And she was from an ethnic group known as the Khoikhoi, where the people became known as Hottentots by Europeans who came to that area. So her body proportions were the subject of speculation, ridicule, humiliation, and degradation because it was not the typical female shape found among European, which you know means white, women. Calling her the Hottentot Venus, which is how they marketed her as she was part of a touring spectacle around Europe, was to say that she was the she was from the worst type of group because she was black, right, African, but that she had aspects of the desired best female figure, which is what the Venus in Greek mythology is known for. So I went into talking about Sarchi as part of this because it shows a pattern of blacks being disrespected in Europe well before the Third Reich and well before, you know, World War One, well before, you know, interracial marriage in Germany, etc. 
So I've heard that Sartre's genitals are still on display in some museum in Europe, and I'm not 100% sure where. So even in death, she's still degraded and humiliated. Now fast forward to the 1930s, Germans already know a world in which black and African descended peoples, whether mixed or not, are considered subhuman, right? They're considered less human than they. And the scientific education of that time backed that ideology up. So there was little to challenge their nationalist way of thinking that focused on Nordic ancestry as the pinnacle of civilization. And that's not a far cry from what they would co-sign later on with the ideologies that the Nazi leaders put into place during the Third Reich. So the Nazis began to forcibly sterilize Afro-Germans and all others who fell into the, that qualification list on January 1st, 1934. So they took influence from American eugenicists Ezra Gosney and Paul Popino, and Gosney and Popino's book was titled Sterilization for Human Betterment, which was published in 1929 and was based on research that was done in California. So Afro-German children were taken from their schools, churches, etc. to be you know, sterilized in university hospitals and clinics, actually, which is interesting too. Um, and it was under the guise of having consent of the parents because they'd have forms that were signed by the parents, but off, but you know, these parents were coerced into signing, which means, you know, for analysis of the time period that they were having their lives threatened if they did not sign to have their children sterilized. And these were not always legal because especially at this time in Germany, it's not entirely acceptable to sterilize people solely based on race. But it was something that was openly happening, and the few people who were in a position to stop it actually did. So Afro-German men even had to carry around certificates that showed and proved that they had undergone vasectomies. So they had to carry that classification with them. Now, Afro-Germans during the Third Reich had things like mandatory curfews where they were not permitted to be on the streets and were kept from gainful and full employment. And they even had their livelihoods taken away from them all because of their racial classification. So even for black Europeans or, you know, black American expats, right, people who had moved to Europe, especially um, France, because it was more racially liberated than in the United States at that time, their lives changed once the Nazis occupied Western Europe and especially when they occupied France. And a lot of those people who were American black entertainers who were, you know, living, you know, much less restrictive livelihoods because their race was not a determining factor for everything that they did and had, you know, wanted to permanently stay in Europe and especially wanted to permanently stay in France. A lot of them did come back during this time period. Some of them did stay. Like some of you know, Josephine Baker is one of the examples who stayed um, throughout Nazi occupation. So present day... Of the money that was allocated to pay reparations for the atrocities of the Third Reich and Nazi-occupied Germany, most Afro-Germans did not receive any of that compensation. So there was $5.2 billion, like with a B, billion dollars that were set aside for those who were forced to become slave laborers, which would have been prevalent among Afro-Germans. 
right? Who, because they were forced into lower positions in society during the Third Reich. Like even people who had been professionals before were forced to do these slave labor jobs. So back to the point I originally made about, you know, the controversy regarding the events of the Third Reich and the Holocaust being about race or not, Hitler and his Nazi officials considered people different races, even though race is defined by phenotype. And we've seen that We've seen that before, and I've discussed that on the podcast before. So many of the people who were sterilized, massacred, and imprisoned due to their non-Aryan status were phenotypically just as white as the Aryans considered themselves to be. Now, many of them weren't, but most of them were. So it's unfair, and it actually gives Hitler's point of view the perspective of being true. Like, okay, we're just going to go with Hitler's idea for like, you know, who's part of this race or not by claiming that it was solely based on race. It was based on many things, not just race, right? Because like I just discussed, there were non-white people who were also dealing with sterilization, death, imprisonment, etc. because of their race or because of their non-Aryan status. If you're familiar with what the classifications and qualifications were to be considered non-Aryan because of you know, abilities or disabilities because of, you know, like histories of depression. Like when you look at what they were actually classifying and how they were categorizing people, there were a lot of people, like I said, who were otherwise Aryan, who were having to deal with reduced capacities in society because of these edicts. And in Germany at that time, economic downturn and scapegoating was important, as any historian of the matter will generally attest to. People who were in the minority were being blamed for the problems faced by the majority, which is what makes what's going on in the United States today so scary. And one of the things I'm thinking about is the ex- the insurrection that we had last year on January 6th. So the last thought I want to talk about is that there's not only a war on, you know, people being upset about critical race theory, even though like most people don't even know what it means, <laughs> But there is a war on the history of this country and the history of the world. So historians, in my opinion, are going to be far and few in between in the next generation. And someone has to be willing to teach the real history, to give primary source evidence, and to train people how to think critically about the time that they're in, but also consider concurrent events, right? And analyze the significance of world events in, in any given space and time anywhere in the world. And I would encourage all of you to be aware of the lack of books that I think we're going to see published about actual history. And even the books that have already been published, I think that they're going to end up costing a lot more money, especially books that are out of print, even if they're not that old. So this isn't over. And that's why I started the podcast and have been moving to digitize my content for my courses over the last four years, even before the pandemic. It has to be accessible or it's going to be misrepresented. So everyone have a good week. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the movies. Bye.